Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Barry Opper, best known as the producer of the Critters series, the tongue-in-cheek sci-fi horror series about furry little creatures from outer space creating havoc here on Earth. Barry started out, together with his business partner Rupert Harvey, as the producer of Aaron Lipstadt's 1982 sci-fi cult film Android, which was made in collaboration with Roger Corman and starred Klaus Kinski and Barry's brother Don, who also wrote the screenplay. Barry and Rupert went on to produce the Critters series, which also starred Don as Critter Hunter Charlie, and they also made Aaron Lipstadt's post-apocalyptic film City Limits and the noirish crime thriller Slam Dance, both also written by Don. Later on, Barry worked as a producer on the first installment of Victor Salva's Jeepers Creepers series, and co-produced video director Mark Klasfeld's feature film debut, The Biting Satire, The L.A. Riot Spectacular. In our conversation, Barry recalls how he went from working as a teacher in West Africa to joining the company theater group in Los Angeles and then becoming a movie producer. He tells numerous anecdotes from his various movies. For example, how a young and unknown teenager named Leo DiCaprio became one of the stars of Critters 3. He discusses some of the problems that the productions ran into, including creative differences on slam dance and a difficult situation on Jeepers Creepers, which led to Barry being fired from the film. Barry also talks about his personal and his creative relationship with his brother Don, and he discusses some of the projects he is currently working on. The interview was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz. So, if you speak German, please visit lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 63, which features an in-depth discussion of Barry's first film, Android. Also, make sure to listen to my interview with Android director Aaron Lipstead here on Talking Pictures. If you enjoy my conversation with Barry Opper, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out more interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is Barry Opper discussing how he became interested in the world of movies. I um, taught school in West Africa my first two and a half years after college at the University of Illinois. Um, and somewhere over there, I decided I would go to grad school in theater. Um, and I applied from Africa to, to grad schools. And so I was accepted while I was in Africa, I couldn't go in for interviews or anything at the University of Southern California, USC. Um, and when I got back, got, got home from West Africa, I went to Southern California, to University of Southern California in a master's program. Uh, one of the first courses I took was called Aesthetics of the Theater. Um, I'd been two and a half years in a upcountry village of 50 huts, uh, and the language that was spoken there uh, had no more than 5,000 words or so. <laughs> um, so aesthetics of the theater was a kind of brutal re-entry into the United States of America. <laughs> um, and it prompted me to drop out of school eventually because I couldn't understand anything anyone said. Uh, I couldn't understand long sentences. Um, but 
while I was there, I got to know quite a few people that formed the theater group called the Company Theater of Los Angeles. And um, I became a, a five-year member of that theater group. Uh, at some point, I began running it. It was a collective, um, but I was writing scripts in the office where the only typewriter was, and I started answering phones. So I became an administrator. And then we formed another theater called the Provisional Theater of Los Angeles. We traveled the world. Um, I, all of a sudden, I was in theater. Uh, and my brother, uh, who dropped out of school, he, he moved to California to be with me. We lived together. Uh, and he joined the theater with me. Um, and I had illusions at one time of maybe being an actor. Um, but my brother, the first time he was on a stage, he was in an, a play by Edward Bond called Narrow Journey to the Deep North. Um, and he was playing a peasant who was being put in a bag to be thrown in a river because there were too many peasants. And I was watching him perform from the light booth, his first performance. And that was the day I decided I wasn't going to be an actor because he was unbelievable. Um, and I'm sure you're going to ask me questions about my brother because we mm -hmm. went on to work together. Um, so my brother, he got married, had a child, and he went to work. He had to go to work. The theater wasn't bringing any money, so he went to work for Roger Corman. And he was a carpenter for Roger Corman. Uh, not an actor, not a writer any longer. Uh, um, but a rumor came down in Roger Corman's New World. Was it called New World at that time? Anyway, in his studios that there was a setup for a, um, a movie called Battle Beyond the Stars. And it was rumored that if anybody had a script that could be shot on those same sets, that Roger would be interested in financing it so my brother and a carpenter wrote a script you know in maybe two or three weeks and roger said he was interested but would they be willing to raise half the money which is typical for roger corman to get in with as little money as he could um and so my brother called me uh one of the a chief accountants at Roger's place was a man named Rupert Harvey. And mm -hmm. my brother put Rupert and myself together to try to raise money so that we could do the movie script that they wrote called Android, which went on to be made uh, at uh, New World and uh, starred my brother and Klaus Kinski. And that was the first movie I made. And that was when I left theater to go into movies. Mm -hmm. So that's where it all got started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's such a such a brilliant first movie. I think Android. It's it's such a um, such an interesting blend of science fiction and a, almost a philosophical um, approach to you know what is humanity, what is like growing up and and um, it was uh, it was an incredible experience to make it. And then the first place we went with it was to film festivals. And um, I remember there, there was a screening in Seattle at the Seattle Film Festival. There was a screening at the British Film Festival. 
that were unbelievable. The I mean, the, you know, we're talking about 800 to 1,000 seat theaters and the house came apart watching the movie in, in those and other film festivals. And gee, we thought we were going to be made, you know, that we were going to get to make any movies we wanted to make in the future. It was very exciting. But then subsequently, Roger tested the movie in, of all places, Las Vegas. And I, I mean, I was at that screening. I mean, maybe 80 people showed up to the test screening. Um, and he decided that he couldn't distribute the film. After all that success at film festivals, of course, Roger never went to film festivals, so mm. he never experienced the film working. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But uh, all of a sudden, Rupert and I were faced with having to buy the movie back from Roger if we wanted it to go anyplace at all. Um, and that's so we had to raise more money. Um, and we did. And so we wound up owning the film. Um, but of course, we had no money to really distribute it. So we had to go with a small distributor and it got very limited distribution. But there still is a cult following for the movie. Mm -hmm. So um, and Klaus Kinski is it's a comedy. Yeah. And he was. Uh, oh, you've seen it. Klaus Kinski was as good as he is in in, in his serious movies. Um, he he was a remarkable comedian. So uh, it was a pleasure. It, it was a pleasure watching him as an actor. Uh, he wasn't uh, that pleasant as a human being. <laughs> Do you have any specific experiences there on set? Uh, with, uh, with I, I certainly did. Um, the man is dead, right? So I yeah. probably shouldn't talk about it, but um, he was um, he was a notorious skirt chaser. There's a lot of rumors about him that after working with him, I might well believe. Uh, but in our case, I mean, just for example, the uh, lead actress in the movie playing Cassandra, the second android to my brother who played the first mm -hmm. android, Max 404, in the movie, um, was, was the second android that Klaus Kinski's professor was supposed to be creating. And when Klaus was playing scenes with her, uh, I was usually right below camera. So when we were doing her close-ups, Klaus was standing uh, off camera giving her lines, but his hand would go to her lower regions mm -hmm. while camera was rolling. And I was sitting under camera and I'd have to pull his hand away so we could finish the scene <laughs> with that, you know, it, uh, as economically as we could. Um, that's just one example of, of an uncontrollable man. Yeah. Um, How did you manage to get him on board um, in the first place? I mean, it is a, a, a first time. You were a first time producer. Aaron yeah, was um, a first time director. We, Aaron was a first time director. Uh, Klaus's agent in America was a man named Walter Koner. K-O-H-N-E-R. Uh, he was pretty notorious as an agent. We called him. 
he read the script and you know he said yes for a hundred thousand dollars they were they would do it which meant we had to go raise more money because that absolutely broke our budget um our original budget was five hundred thousand dollars to do the movie i won't tell you what it ultimately was made for um we still are keeping that secret but um uh, anyway, so we raised more money. We got him, um, and the the rest of the casting were relative unknowns at the time. Although some of them were my my friends from theater, so um, mm -hmm. Norbert Weiser was from my theater group, uh, and my brother Donnie had worked with him as well. So mm -hmm. um, we were able to cast from actors that I knew that were quite good. And Brie Howard, who played the other female lead in the movie, um, Aaron had seen, she was a drummer in a all girl band and Aaron had seen her perform and she ultimately was cast as a result of, have, of Aaron, our director, having seen her perform as a drummer. Anyway, so that's, mm -hmm. that's Android. Yeah. I imagine it must have been quite challenging um, to do a movie on such a low budget. And then, you know, none of you really had a lot of experience, I think. Um, well, we that, that's correct. But um, Aaron, who Aaron had been Roger's assistant for several years. Um, Rupert, my partner, had been there with Roger for several years. I, you know, you. you all the great names that worked with her and went on to work in the studio system. Uh, that's the way, that's, that's the way you came up. That's the way you learned. You were on set, you were in the editing room. I mean, you, you learned that way. That was, it's a shame that it was a stepping stone at one time that, it, and then uh, it was disdained. Work coming out of the low budget world was disdained, but it was not, it was good enough for Francis Ford Coppola and Joe Dante and, you know, all that. Jim Cameron was, in fact, the guy for us, the young kid for us, who did our initial production drawings on Android. And our object on Android was to make it not look like a Roger Corman film. <laughs> we, we just, you know, our, our spaceships, we did the same corridors for corridors for spaceships that Roger had built, but we took everything off the walls and we made everything clean. And uh, some of the initial drawings, Jim Cameron did for us. So uh, that was the world of, of new, new World at that time was you, you were working with people who were uh, watching and learning. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel that it's almost the last era of that of, of the Corman School of Filmmaking, where so many people went on to do, um, yeah, I, I think the home video rose after that, hmm. and home video became the testing at the time, like with Sex Lies, videotape, those kind of movies, they that were made by RCA, you know, by home video companies, they became the new low budget films that established people later who became directors mm -hmm. for the studio system and Roger was kind of phased out as a 
stepping stone. Mm. So yeah, uh, the 80s brought in a, a new era that kind of negated Rogers' company from producing so many great artists. Yeah, I mean, when you look at just the the, the credits of Android, um, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, not just with you and 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 Rupert, but um, Stephen Herrick was involved. And uh... well, right now, now it's interesting because I know you want to talk about critters a, a bit as well. Steve Herrick was an editor, uh, an assistant editor on Android, and Dominic Moore, Muir, Brian Muir, as we knew him, was also an assistant editor. And after we made Android, Steve and Brian brought us this script called Critters to Rupert and I. Mm -hmm. um, and we said, yeah, let's do this. And so that grew out of Android. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, and then we said that, you know, Steve said, I want to direct it. And he was, he was nobody. I mean, really, a, he was an assistant director. Um, and we said, we try, well, you know, we, we can't promise it. We want to do this, this script with a few rewrites. You know, we, we developed it with a little bit more with them, but um, we said, we'll try. We didn't know for sure we could, that Rupert and I had the clout even to do it. So uh, ultimately we did, and we did it with New Line Cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, you managed to to um, really set up a great cast for, for Critters. I mean, there's so many great actors in there. Well, you know, it's interesting. Roger, through his lawyer, who actually, Roger's lawyers were UCLA grad students becoming lawyers. I mean, he hired uh, would-be lawyers as opposed to uh, people who had their the degrees. We, we were going to do it with uh, uh, his his lawyer was Brad Cravoy. His law student mm -hmm. lawyer was Brad mm -hmm. Cravoy. Who, um, and so we were, Roger wanted to do it with us. We wanted to do it uh, at a minuscule budget again. Um, but while we were in Milan showing Android for foreign sales, Rupert and I met Bob Shea, who liked Android a great deal. And when we got back to this country, um, Bob was going to be staying at the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles on a trip to Los Angeles. He His home was New York. Um, and that's where New Line Cinema was at the time located. Uh, anyway, one one weekend, he said, what do you got? And Rupert and I went and pitched Critters maybe the week before we were supposed to sign to do a deal with New, uh, with New World. Mm -hmm. And Bob said, I'll do the movie with you. And by that Monday, that was a weekend. By that Monday, we had paperwork <laughs> for, uh, uh, I think it was a, for a two-picture deal from New Line. It was a Hollywood story. And all of a sudden... And and they agreed to Steve Herrick as director, which we didn't even know we could get done. And that was Steve's first movie mm. as a director. So that's how Critters happened. Yeah, that's that's amazing. You did one movie in between, um, a movie that really went under City Limits. 
Yes, um, we did. It's uh, <laughs> which ha also had a terrific cast from yeah. James Earl Jones, Aaron, uh, and uh, and Rupert and and uh, myself off of Android were given the the right to do a movie, and Aaron wanted to do a motorcycle movie next. Mm -hmm. Um, and we developed it and and the financing came together fairly easily, but from a couple of dying companies. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to look up. I can't even remember the names. <laughs> um, oh, A Atlantic Releasing, I think, was one, was the American company and a British company. And they financed it. And I think the movie was not uh, as great as we envisioned it being. Mm -hmm. um, and it got a, a, a several uh, worst movie of the year awards. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, it's uh, a post post apocalyptic period. Uh, and maybe it was before its time. People didn't believe in the apocalypse then. Maybe <laughs> they do now. <laughs> yeah, it's a more pressing issue, maybe. Um, but I read that there were actually two versions of, of City Limits, that you sort of had a first cut, and then that was screened um, with different music, and then there were reshoots. and the, the Yes, yes. Uh, we eventually, um, we had uh, a score done by John Lurie, who's an incredible saxophone player with a group called Lounge Lizards out of New York. They, they were, at the time, a notorious mm -hmm. fringe uh, uh, music group. Uh, and John did a terrific score. John Lurie went on to star in Jim Jarmusch movie, mm. movies. So he he's quite a character, quite a guy. Um, and... Um, when the movie was finally picked up for a limited release, they said the, the score is too eclectic, too <laughs> out there. So <clears throat> we got a composer named Mitchell Froome to do the score and, and more electric guitar based <clears throat> motorcycle movie score. Mm -hmm. And yes, we had to you know, studios, large or small, take over and change things. Um, and there's a story about critters. I'll tell you on that along that line. If if uh, mm -hmm. if you're interested, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, because I, I, you're familiar with critters, yes? You've seen absolutely. it, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Many um, times. Many times. All right. The whole series. <laughs> the movie we shot had the family together but the house had been destroyed mm -hmm. uh in the struggle to beat off the critters that you know to beat the critters at the end um and that was the movie that was the movie we screened for audience you know uh, we tested and everything the movie was successful but bob shea who hadn't seen the movie while we were shooting it said, wait a minute, we can't 
have a movie where the house is destroyed. It's too downer of a movie. We and you know, we said, no, Bob, the family's together at the end. That's a victory. They beat, mm -hmm. they won. <laughs> so essentially, Bob made us reshoot the ending. And that scene where the house is reconstructed, where they push this magic button that yeah. the uh, yeah. bounty hunter <laughs> sort of left them. Goes backwards. You, well, that's a miniature going together behind them. That, that was a house um, no bigger than a, a, a printer <laughs> in their background and shot in perspective. So that, that was, so that ending that you see on the movie the house being constructed was uh, was shot. I don't know six or seven weeks after we showed the movie, mm -hmm. and that became the ending of the movie. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it it it's such a I mean it's a cool ending to, to the film. It's such a nice little joke when the the mailbox goes up and the, the yes, little sign yeah. on the mailbox goes up and the cat is in there. Um, that's such a sweet right and, and... that was all scripted after after we had finished the movie now you know i'm not i don't know whose ending was better <laughs> um and i'm fine with this ending but mm -hmm. i'm just saying that that came after the fact mm -hmm. i see i you know i remember this is a long time ago we're talking about 1983 or four something like that and steve first time director was um, devastated by Bob mm -hmm. wanting to change the movie, but that was that was the company that was putting up the money for the movie. So they made that. I, you know, I don't know that we'd have been easily convinced, but so, but Bob can take responsibility for that ending. Mm -hmm. I see. I give it to him. <laughs> Interesting. Now, Critters again was a was an instance where you worked with your brother. You worked with him on on Android. You worked with him on on City Limits, um, and again on Critters. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about the the, the relationship you have with your brother and uh, the collaboration that you have? Yeah, my my brother is eight younger than I am, and in a lot, I mean, I remember taking him to his first kindergarten class. Um, uh, in, in a lot of ways, I think maybe, I know my mom was sick uh, in a lot of my brother's younger years. So I, I think, and my father was working at least six days a week. So I think I was more parental in some ways with my brother being eight years ahead of him. I, I was the older brother that did things first, right? Mm -hmm. Um whether it was taking drugs or whether whatever it was, I mean, it was hard when you were eight years behind. Um, and, and then I went off to teach school in Africa. So when he um, got out of high school, he came out to live with me. And that was a relationship that didn't work great actually living together um, <laughs> because that his whatever it was, 18-year-old phase of life, he was still leaving dirty socks on the floor and uh, <laughs> it's a little hard for to live with. Um, but he was, almost anything he touched in an artistic realm, he did well. He painted 
wonderfully as a teenager. He um, wrote wonderfully uh, in his late teens, early 20s. And then when he joined our theater, he was an incredible actor. He he would uh, he he wasn't uh, John Gielgud technical actor because he had a Chicago accent and um, but he filled every role he played so wonderfully that you felt you knew the character, um, and, which is the case with Max Four Hundred Four, mm -hmm. with the character he played in City Limits, and then his Charlie McFadden in the Critters movies. Uh, I, I mean, he to this day can go anywhere in America and he's recognized mm -hmm. fondly. You can see, and you know, people show their Critters tattoos to my <laughs> brother in, in Florida and wherever he goes, he's he's recognized. So, so we continued working together for essentially the rest of our lives where we have a brother in between us who's who's since passed away um but don and i were very close and you know we had the same problems that brothers have um sometimes we had huge fights i remember on critters too i remember i don't remember what we were fighting about but i remember walking the streets of that town we built for critters too uh, we built the town of Grover's Bend. We were having some argument. And while we were shooting in the church, my brother and I were walking. It's a December night in uh, California, but it was really cold. Uh, and I remember shivering as we were having some fight walking down this the street of Grover's Bend, uh, fake Grover's Bend. It wasn't as if we were all loving all the time, but we've never been apart. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just called him before before this interview to tell him not to give me a call between 10 and 12. So oh. <laughs> our time. Um, and I still, you know, he's now working as a carpenter. He kind of left the film industry after several scripts of his, which are terrific scripts, were optioned in one way or another by the studios and the studio executive executives drove my brother mad mm. um, with changes. He couldn't, you know, he'd sit in a room of 10 or 12 people and they wouldn't realize that changes they're at, that one person is asking for the third act totally changes the first act. Mm. And then as an actor, the audition system was was uh, almost more than he could handle. I mean, after a while, um, and I don't know if you followed his career, but you know he mm -hmm. did some recurring roles on Miami Vice. He did, you know, you'd see him. It's funny every time I would go to Europe for a film festival or something, I would turn like I'd be in Italy and I'd turn on the television and I'd see my brother in something that he did speaking Italian, um, <laughs> like a Miami Vice episode or something. I had this in, uncanny ability to just switch on the television. There was my brother doing some <laughs> something. So anyway, so we are still close. And uh, I still think he's very talented. Mm. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, like you say, he really is the heart and soul of the whole Critters series and also of Android. Um, I mean, he's such a such an interesting character actor, I think. Um, I've always been quite disappointed that he didn't really um, do so much after the Critters series. Also as a writer, I think. Um, such a such a voice of his own. Clint Eastwood optioned the script of his and he went through universal meetings, you know, with the studio and Clint for months and months and months. And eventually they didn't do that movie. There was a script at Warner Brothers that we had that was a beautiful script that was very autobiographical that uh, George Harrison was going to do with Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Um we went through months and months of uh, of those meetings. It wound up not getting, you know, there were so many heartbreaking events in terms of Hollywood. Um, but, you know, uh, those scripts he wrote stand up today. I, you know, not to be bitter, but my nepotism with my brother was not strong enough to beat <laughs> the prevailing nepotism of Hollywood, which is that not a lot of people like Marilyn Monroe are discovered at Schwab's mm. pharmacy. <laughs> you know, it, it's the, the industry isn't like that any longer. So yes, I feel, you know, I feel badly that I wasn't able to do more mm. to help, uh, particularly his writing, uh, his, his acting is also fantastic, but I, you know, I just, and we did slam dance, which I know was on your list of things to ask mm -hmm. about Wayne Wang. Uh, that was an unbelievable script before Wayne got a hold of it. Uh, um, <laughs> which in the week before we started shooting, he decided the script didn't work. So, okay. Um, we didn't shoot the script that was, was written it became a it became different and then it became a race to try to reconstruct the script before we ran out of money which we didn't fully do um now i i found out i really liked wayne a lot so but the problem was i found out after the fact when we did the deal for slam dance it was between island alive and carrie brokaw Mm -hmm. and a, a guy named Scott Meek, who was with Zenith in England. Those two companies went together to finance uh, Slamdance. We didn't have a director when they financed Slamdance. So those two companies and myself and Rupert went through the director choices. We finally decided on, on Wayne, but I didn't research it well enough to know that he had had a habit on his prior movies of falling out of love with the script the week before, <laughs> which is precisely what happened on slam dance. And we put together an unbelievably good crew of people. Amir Mokri who shot it was an artist that I, I mean, I, I saw this video he did of the Bob Seger song i can't remember uh it's in front of a railroad it, it's a gorgeous it's the most gorgeous music video i've ever seen in my life um 
anyway, so we put together a company of people that were incredible, but we threw out the script in many ways the week before. Mm-hmm. And then we cut Wayne's version of the film. And the point I was going to make is this was before digital editing. So mm-hmm. we were cutting on film. We tested Wayne's version of the film. And A, we were not happy with it. And B, it didn't test, it, you know, it didn't test very well. Mm-hmm. But it it was cut on film. You can't just push buttons and mm-hmm. get back. So we were had a finite amount of money. There was no more money coming from the two companies that were financing us, Island Alive and Zenith. And so we had to, we, we said, we're going to reconstruct what was shot into the script that my brother Donnie had written. Mm-hmm. I see. We never made it fully back mm-hmm. before we ran out of money. So the version of Slam Dance that's out there is somewhere between Wayne's version, which he has disavowed, mm-hmm. and our version, which we wanted to get back to. So that's what... Uh, so there are elements that are really interesting in Slam Dance. Mm-hmm. It's a gorgeous movie. Yeah. But it never got quite back to the script that it was intended, th- that we wanted to shoot. Mm-hmm. So that's the story of Slam Dance. Yeah. Yeah, it has so many, like you say, so many great elements. I mean, just the, the visuals, um, Mokri's visuals, I think you could do a frame of, of like every second shot and just hang it on your wall. And uh, it's just su- such an yes. amazing movie to look at. And the cast was fantastic. Yeah. Of course, um, you know, the, the casting of Tom Hulse was amazing at the time because he had just been up for an academy award with mozart mm-hmm. but mary elizabeth mastrantonio and Vir- virginia madsen the casting director we got lorna kennedy was uh, she's the best casting director i've ever worked with so there are elements that are mm-hmm. and the idea of adam ant in the movie yeah. was was a remarkable idea that that was uh laura's idea um yeah, Harry Dean anyway. Stanton is in the film. Um, and Harry he's, Dean he's always a pleasure to to watch. Yeah, and uh, so so the so the cast is fantastic. Um, the film just never got back to where we wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Rupert and I wanted we wanted maybe six more weeks mm-hmm. to get back. Anyway, we never got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You can feel that when you watch the film, um, that the elements are there. They just don't quite come together. There's something missing or something that 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 went wrong. You, when, Without knowing the backstory, you just feel that uh, something went wrong there, especially in the later parts of the movie when it all falls apart. And um, when you should be able to follow the, the whole mystery plot, um, the, the whole conspiracy um, part of the story. It, it, it sort of it, you get lost in a while, in a sense. Yeah, it was all there late. I mean, you know, I mean, there, you can't look back and, and redo anything, but, mm. you know, I could send you I mean, the script. The threads are all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just didn't shoot 
all the threads. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's my view of it. I mean, Wayne's got another view, I'm sure, but that's my assessment of what happened with it. Um, <laughs> and then after Slamdance, you went back to the world of Critters and um, con continued the series. Um, how did you be become involved with Mick Garris as a director? Well, by by the time of Critters 2, New Line was now, except for the ending of Critters 1, the first one, we were sort of on our own to do the Critters movies. New Line was not an active daily partner. To do Critters 2, we now had a studio as a partner. So they appointed one of their executives, Jeff Sheckman, as our studio liaison, our studio head. And he came at us, at Rupert and myself, with uh, a list of directors. And we met, we met them. They were, they were considered hot young directors by New Line. Um, and so Mick was one of them. Um, and we, we liked his personality. And so he became the director of Critters 2. Uh, he was a person brought to us by New Line. I cannot remember if we ever offered it to Steve Herrick, mm -hmm. who had gone on to direct Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure after our movie. But Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, until our Orion picked it up, was sitting in a vault someplace, not considered um, uh, distributable. And it was, uh, Steve made the movie and went on a depressive vacation after making Bill and Ted, because the, the studio that originally put up the money for it wasn't going to distribute it. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you in terms of my memory, I mean, Steve's still around, Uh, whether we even could offer it to him at that point. Mm -hmm. I think he it advanced beyond us by that by that point. But that's that's a foggy memory. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how he decided that Mick Garris would direct. Uh, he was also a writer director, but we had my brother in the stable writing behind him as well. Um, in in the especially the Charlie McFadden role, mm -hmm. um, so that's that's how that happened. Mm -hmm. Do you remember some of the discussions you had on how to continue the series in terms of the tone or the the, the things that you would want to see in a sequel or the directions that you didn't want to go into? You know, I mean, theoretically, this idea. Doing sequels was, has always been really interesting to me because mm -hmm. I always liked Alien better than the sequel Aliens because the monster wasn't seen in Alien. Mm -hmm. And I always thought the audience's imagination is better than, I mean, these were the early days of, of CG, but was better than any monster you could build or create or anything if you actually saw it it wasn't as good as your imagination so i know that's one person's opinion that now 
through the rise of CGI and everything, um, they're making awfully good, scary elements and everything. Um, so at that time, there was a kind of conversation about when we decided to do Critters 2, which was double the budget of the first Critters, whether we should see the danger or fear the danger that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, and with Mick, it became a bit more of a comedy mm. as opposed to a scare movie. Now, I, I'll, I'll go back with another little story, if you don't mind. Sure. At the time we were talking about doing Critters, Bob Shea had given Rupert and I a script that he was thinking of doing that he wanted the two of us to see if we could raise money to help uh, finance the movie because Bob was afraid to finance it all, at the time all by himself or he wanted somebody to back him up. Rupert and I read the script and said, Bob, we're not interested. It's too mean-spirited for us. That script was Nightmare on, on Elm Street. <laughs> Uh, I tell that story to tell you why Critters was a little bit different for us was because Critters 1 was not mean-spirited. Mm. It was made for a younger audience. And although we tried to maintain the scares in it, there was a, a romp kind of feel to it, too. I mean, you were laughing as you were jumping. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, that was sort of where our sensibilities were at that time. And, and Rupert went on to produce one of the Nightmare series for Bob. Uh, his wife, Rachel, directed one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, we went back and had something to do <laughs> with Nightmare on Elm Streets afterwards. But at the time, we said no. <laughs> uh, although, I, you know, we might have been tapped out at the time. We weren't rich kids at all. Um, and I don't know at that time we could have raised money to help Bob make the movie, but he was asking us if we could. So anyway, that's another little story. Um, but anyway, to get back to Critters 2 now, I think with Mick's personality, it was taken a little bit more into the humor end than the scare end. Knowing that our audience was a young audience, it was not an audience like Nightmare on Elm Street audience, which were little older teenagers. Ours was a movie that 11 or 12-year-old kids was, were looking at, mm. and it was forming. I mean, as I referred to earlier, uh, my brother Donnie was to Critters conventions, you know, two or three or four years ago. He was still being asked to Critters conventions around the country. and People in their 40s now are showing him his, their ta Critters tattoos all over their body. I mean, so there there was a cult following to Critters mm -hmm. that carried through all four of them. But compared to one, I, I think it's interesting if you're talking about two, it was a little larger, but a little more comical than scary. I don't know if you've ever encountered the German version of the second film, because, I mean, the critters don't talk during the movies. They just have these funny little voices. 
but in the second one in the german version they are actually dubbed and they sort of talk throughout the movie i would have been no i haven't seen it but i would have been so pissed off because interestingly to you know to jump to the present rupert and i had a deal with new line that then was bought by warner brothers so warner brothers owned the critters franchise ultimately mm -hmm. and there are two sequels that have been made that have Rupert's and my name on them that in reality we had nothing to do with. Oh, okay. But both of them went away that pissed us off immensely. And that is writing what well, we call it Marx Brothers routines <laughs> for the critters <clears throat> and also the Kyoto brothers who designed the critters are equally as uh, pissed about it. I mean, uh, uh, so we think that in, in both, there, there was a, a, a series that was made, uh, this is in the last five years, mm -hmm. and there was a made-for-TV movie uh, out of, that was shot in South Africa that brought back Dee Wallace mm -hmm. as the bounty hunter uh, that uh, make human the critters by giving them routines. And it it's not the way any of us that created the Critters movies would have ever gone. Mm -hmm. So if the Germans did that to us, we'd have been angry at that point. Yeah. Uh, because the ominous nature of the Critters was they, they were thinking beings, but they weren't Americans. <laughs> you know, they weren't. They weren't Marx Brothers or the mm. Three Stooges. Anyway. Yeah. Luckily, they only did it for the second movie. Uh, for the other ones, they just went with the original voices. Oh, good. And the good. second one, I'm they have those almost like Smurfs, you know, with those high-pitched voices when they come mm -hmm. on screen. And they, they, they do all sorts no, no, of jokes. If too. you look at the series that was made, mm -hmm. I mean, essentially, Rupert and I sold our names. They, they bought us off because mm -hmm. they the deal with that we had done with New Line, it was if there was ever any sequels done under the deal, they would have to come to Rupert and myself first. Mm -hmm. But both of those other movies were hidden from us until it was too late for us to have any effect on it. I see. And so then they came to us because they knew they had a, a contract problem if they didn't. And then they just offered us money to get us to sign off and at some point they wore us down mm -hmm. yeah but you were involved with critters three and four the um, yes the original sequels and i think you actually became more involved with them because you actually have a screenwriting credit on both of them and you did second unit um, on both of them here's what happened this was years later this was in 92 i think so this was after both the movies had come out and this was i think prior to it being made as a feature film, but it was right at the beginning of the time when it appeared to Rupert and myself that people were interested in sequels and movies of the 80s that they had loved, that young people were interested when they were young adults to go check in on, on the characters that they knew and loved or whatever. So New Line really didn't want to make another two Critters movies. 
but Rupert and I pitched a, a plan. The exec at New Line that we pitched it to was Steve Abramson, Abramson, who was the treasurer at, at uh, New Line. And the exec at New Line was Mark Ordesky, who uh, went on to, he used our same formula to make his movies. Yeah. Uh, which was, we pitched to New Line, look, let us make two movies at once. And we can make them for the same amount of money that we would have made one movie because, you know, we'll build on one half of a stage, an urban apartment building. And on the other half of the stage, we'll build a spaceship set up and we'll move first from one movie to the next movie. We'll hire two different directors so they can be adequately prepped. Anyway, Ultimately, because it was so inexpensive, I think they went for the idea and we made Critters 3 and 4. Rupert and I did do the stories, you know, complete stories for those two movies, I believe, to, I think we submitted them before we got the deal for New Line or mm -hmm. whatever it was. And so we got Christine Peterson to direct the first. And Rupert wanted to direct, and we convinced them to let Rupert direct the second. So the movies were conceived at the same time, but given the two different directors, they took on a very different tone. Mm -hmm. But they were shot at the same time, mm -hmm. um, uh, like shooting a 180-page script. I we I think we had a two week hiatus between the shooting of both of them, mm -hmm. but the same crews, the same DP, the you know the same crews, were on the movie except different directors. I think it was the same production designer even, but I'm not sure. I believe it was Philip Philip Foreman who did both. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's kind of the story of Critters Three and Four, um, and we do have story credit. Yes. Mm -hmm. And again, it's such a great cast that you assemble. I mean, in, in, in part four, you have Brett Dourif and Angela Bassett. And in, in three, I mean, obviously, well, you, you didn't know that back then, but having Leo DiCaprio in that movie is <laughs> so amazing. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, out of Roger Corman, who had a habit of, of doing that too, of discovering talent, we, who shot, Critters 2, Russell Carpenter, mm -hmm. went on to win an Academy Award for Terminator and, mm -hmm. okay, uh, who was in Critters 3, Leonardo DiCaprio, Angela Bassett in Critters 4, Brad Dourif. So we, we have a habit of, uh, with Angela, who was a Yale acting student, uh, had not, not really done anything. We did discover a lot of people who who then went on to disavow us in their, mm. I mean, for, for Leo. <laughs> uh, I mean, the way we got Leo was George, his father, Don and I are, were long residents of a, of a community, uh, of a place in Los Angeles called Echo Park, mm -hmm. which is kind of a notorious artist area in Los Angeles, gone through a lot of changes. But a local poet was named George DiCaprio, was 
Leo's father, who Don better than me, but we knew him. And so we went to George. I mean, Leo had just been a, in a few television shows. We need a needed a 15-year-old boy. He was ideal. And so we went to George to see if Leo might be interested. That's that's we so we got Leo through his father. Mm -hmm. And we're still um in touch with with and my brother's still in touch with George. Mm -hmm. In fact, he borrowed money from George once when I was in jail to help oh. bail me out. <laughs> um so uh anyway that's a whole nother story but anyway so yeah we got um we were pretty good at finding talent but you know yeah. to go back to slam dance that my brother's script was circulating so widely amongst actors that tom hulse was sleeping over at a friend's house and i can't remember what actor it was whose agent had sent him the script and he was sleeping he was sleeping on a on a um, a bed on the floor in the living room and mm -hmm. the script was in the living room and he read it because he he couldn't go to sleep that night and then his agent called us the next day and said i would you might you be interested in tom secondarily in our office that we were running production out of one afternoon, completely unasked, Laura Dern and, oh, I can't remember her name, another oh. notorious, well-known actress. They walked into our office. They, they had read the script and they asked us to audition. Wow. <laughs> just from reading the script. So, I, I, I mean, I, don't, I think we weren't the only ones that loved that script mm -hmm. the way the way we did well anyway so that's the that's the uh, slam dance another reflection on slam dance um so yeah leo was the boy in critters three mm -hmm. i was always very happy um that bill hunt was in critters three that he had a substantial role in critters three bill hunt was a great friend of mine he he died last mm -hmm. year um he was in both the theater groups i worked with bill was one of the lead actors. So I'm glad you're following him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you probably know him from Flesh Gordon. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, he, he was a marvelous friend. Uh, he was at my father's memorial service when my mm -hmm. father passed away. I mean, you know, he was, a, and so, yeah, he, he was somebody, um, I, I mean, there were people, from my theater group that were in most of those movies in smaller parts. Mm -hmm. Don was part of the theater world too. So, you know, so I, I did fall back on my theater years quite often. Mm -hmm. Michael Monroe, who was one of the writers under a pseudonym, I believe on Critters 4, was mm -hmm. also part of a theater. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how that influences the whole, um, like your, your, your whole career in a way that you um, sort of go back to those early theater days um, so often with people involved. Well, you never, you never lose, you never lose your past. Um, mm -hmm. 
but uh, you know but also you know rupert and i haven't worked together for years and years and years he's gone on to have his career i've gone on to have my career um but we're still close i mean we still talk all the time he's he lives in vancouver when you go through it you either hate the people or love the people at the end of it um I, there aren't many people I hate as a result, but I remember the love. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a lot of incredible relationships that were formed, mm -hmm. um, and you know, and you know, I still know the composers. I still see some of the composers on our movies. Um, to get back on track, Critters Four just in terms of tone, Rupert is British. Mm -hmm. And it became a little darker than our other British movies. But part of it is a sensibility that he brought from the British horror sensibility, um, <clears throat> I think. So he did bring his own sensibility into the movie. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to think of those two movies they were very different in tone they were shot at the same time mm. yeah they feel so different and i think it's one of the the charming things about the series that each one of them has a slightly different tone and has really like the fingerprints of of its director uh, on it so they really feel like separate movies in a way that um it's interesting to see how it has those characteristics i think we did that on purpose um Mm -hmm. Although I don't know how much conscious purpose that was, but I, I think we were just not interested in making the same movie over and over again. <laughs> so I think we we picked, each tried to reflect the tone that was there in the room when we met with the directors. Um, and we tried to make new movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always loved the darker tone of, of Critters 4, and I was always disappointed that Rupert never directed another movie well he'll be he'll be happy to hear that um i i i think he was desirous of it but you know he went on to produce mm. uh and he's still producing up there in canada so but yeah i don't think he willingly did not direct again mm -hmm. i just think he had projects that weren't financed did you ever think about directing yourself I, I really wasn't interested in directing. Um, I, I think after the experience of seeing my brother act when initially I wanted to act was a great lesson for me. And that was to find what you do well mm -hmm. and don't be jealous of, of other people's, what they do well and just keep doing what you do well. Um, so I feel like I found my niche and that's what I continue doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, after Critters, you've been involved with another um, really famous horror film, um, the first part of it at least, uh, Jeepers Creepers. How did that come about? Yes. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola was, was the executive producer on that one. Yeah, I, I never met Francis. So he was really mm -hmm. just, he had a, a, an executive Linda Reisman was her name at American Zoetrope was the only person I ever dealt with. Mm -hmm. um, 
Francis had a history with Victor, the director of the movie, that was kind of longstanding because Victor had, in one of his earlier movies, had a relationship with a teenage boy mm -hmm. that was starring in his movie that became scandalous and Victor had gone to prison. Uh, you know this story? You know mm -hmm. all this? Yeah, I've read about it. Mm -hmm. All right. Francis had first seen Victor's work at, a, a, I think, the San Francisco Film Festival. At a film festival, might have been La Jolla. You know, I mean, it might have been uh, San Jose. It might have been a, but it was a film festival up there, up in the north. Francis had seen it when Victor was like an 18-year-old prodigy and was a fan of his work as a director. Mm -hmm. So now years later, Victor had served his time, was trying to make another movie. Uh, Francis, to his credit, suffered the slings and arrows of, of bad press and said, Victor, I'll help you make this movie. Mm -hmm. I was brought the script and asked if I would be interested in working on it by Todd Harris, who was also a producer who I had worked with on uh, a movie called Seven Girlfriends. Mm -hmm. um, and I said no, because I, I felt the script needed work. And I did submit notes. And then Victor called me and we began talking about it. So we developed off of notes. And meanwhile, I did several budgets of the film and I kept getting talked down by American Zoetrope. But I kept saying this script, you, you can't manipulate, you can't say we'll do it for this much money when it's gonna take this money to do this script. Either the script has to be. And so this is something that would be contested out in the world, but these are all these years later. So I said, I can do it at the money you're giving me if I can spend the contingency on production. Mm -hmm. Their head of production said yes to me. About three weeks into the shoot, two weeks into the shoot, somewhere in the, into the shoot. No, maybe it was at the end of prep. We, I, I was the one that found Florida as the, nobody knew this, but Florida had locations that looked like farmland that, you know, was, you know, except obviously the weather window was better, but it was like farmland. I, in fact, Florida is the second largest cattle raising state in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew that. So you had tons of farmland and you had farmland that where you didn't see light poles every mm -hmm. 10 minutes. So I fell in love with Florida. I brought Victor to Florida. We looked at it. Um, so on the, on the assurance that I could spend the contingency funds, we went ahead and entered pre-production, moved down to Florida. In fact, my son, Nathan, was born in Ocala, Florida, while we were on location. Mm -hmm. However, somewhere in late prep, 
someone, oh, the bonding company said, you know what, they're going to go into the contingency. I can see, you know, they rightfully saw that. And the head of production for Zoetrope did not stand with me. She said, oh, yeah, but Barry, Barry assured me he could do it for, you know, without spending the contingency, which was a total lie. Mm. Um, anyway, to make a, a, a long story short, I was essentially fired from the movie. Mm -hmm. Although th they never said it. I never said it. I, I think I'm saying it publicly for the first time. They brought in uh, another producer, a guy out of Atlanta, uh, who really, by the second week of production, was working with the bonding company to finish the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I stayed near Victor on the camera truck and <laughs> for several weeks um my son had just been born i was going home to my wife depressed um i mean we had a a, a little house rented that we were living in we were fighting the battle because people in florida had found out about victor's uh conviction and jail time so nobody in all the housing i had gotten arranged for him went out the window because people were on a hotline closing us up. So I had to put Victor in a hotel on his own floor. I mean, it was, you know, it was like crazy, crazy times. And then eventually I decided this is really, I'm producing in name only. Although, hmm. you know, so I got it all the way into production and all the people are the ones I hired. Uh, Don Fauntleroy, who's the DP, you know, the production designer, they all said, should we leave when you leave? Or, And, mm -hmm. and I said, no, make the movie. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I left after two weeks of, or maybe three weeks of the shoot. Victor asked me back to start seeing uh, cuts of the movie. Uh, and at that time, I said, I'm not really comfortable doing that. So that's the story of me on Jeepers Creepers. I had a lot to do with this development. I had a lot to do with hiring the entire crew. Uh, I had a lot to do with how the movie turned from Victor's script to the final script. Um, but I left production. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and, and it still haunts me. I've never, ever mm. had that experience in all my years doing films. So it, it haunts me to this day. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm always amazed at how how heartbreaking the movie business can be. I mean, we've talked about your brother Don and his scripts. And again, I think this is such an instance where you spend so much time and, 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 and energy on something. And to have an ending like this, I think it's, um, yeah, it's very disappointing. Even if you get back into, uh, into seeing the movie, um, you'll see that the art direction, mm -hmm. like the uh, restaurant they go to is called Opera's Diner. Mm -hmm. I've seen it, yeah. My last <laughs> name, I mean, that was like their little way of, and that was shot after I was gone. Oh, I uh, see. It was just their little way to remember me. Mm -hmm. So, wow. yes, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, and it also explains why you weren't involved with the sequels, because that's that was something that I was wondering about, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, that is the explanation. I, um, 
I mean, I understood Victor had to make the movie. So he couldn't have stood up, even if he wanted to, he couldn't stop. No, I do this with Barry or not. So, you know, I understand it all from a, on a human level. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think one of the large contributions I've made to all the movies is, I mean, part of producing is overseeing the, the scripting and the development of the script. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I have a good sense on that level. So I, I enjoy that part. Mm -hmm. There's another movie that I wanted to ask you about that you've done after um, Jeepers Creepers, which is the L.A. Riot Spectacular. Um, yes. Such an odd and interesting film. Uh, I think Mark Lasfeld's only feature film. Um, I mean, yeah, that is, I mean, it was interesting. Um, John Manulis, uh, who's one of the other producers, is the one that brought me on to the movie. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I had nitty gritty producing experience and I think he needed that in the movie. But Mark was a very highly paid video director um, and highly successful video director. Um, he wanted to be a feature director as well as many vi video and commercial directors were. That was his script. It was as weird as it is in, in realization. <laughs> it was low budget and we, we, you know, but once again, and having Snoop Dogg on the picture mm -hmm. is, I mean, if Klaus Kinski was weird in his way, Snoop Dogg is much weirder in his really? way. Uh, much, much weirder. I mean, he's he brings an entire crew on, on the set if he's really smart, but he's always two hours late after call or so. And if you call him two hours early and call it the call so you have him on time, he's smart enough to know exactly immediately that that's what you're doing. So then he comes four hours late. <laughs> He he brings his entire crew and then he asks for the newest Xbox in his trailer or wherever we have them. And then no matter how you bolt that Xbox down, it's gone <laughs> the first day and he doesn't know anything about it. Um, he But he's also he's such a generous man, even with all that saying all that he he's. Uh, He's funny. He's warm. He just does things his ways, mm -hmm. his way. And I guess in the music business, that's no problem. Of course, making films, it is a problem. Um, the cast was, once again, remarkable. Mm -hmm. uh, the cast in, in the movie was remarkable. Uh, Mark did an excellent job. We were working on a very limited budget. We were stealing locations. We were shooting in in Compton, Watts area. Um, we were doing deals with the gangs on the streets to get protection so we wouldn't go to lunch and have our cameras disappear and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted good goodwill on the streets. We had a lot of very good black actors in the movie. Uh, it was about Rodney King, which was a very important issue 
well, today it's still if a fucking guy with uh, excuse the language, it, no problem with a with a video camera had not been sitting in his apartment on his partner, we we'd have never known. Rodney King may have complained, but no one would have believed him. Mm. You know, it was the first event of those kinds where someone actually filmed it, and now you had to believe. So that the issue was hot. We we got to wed actual footage from Rodney King with new footage. That was a, a great joy of mine, was figuring out a way how to shoot elements of scenes that were on television, use the television, and then cut to our footage and have it be seamless. Mm -hmm. But it was a comedy. So Marx was spoofing everything um, as well. People are still fans of the movie. I still hear about it. But once again, it, it is definitely out there. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that. I think more than anything, it changed Mark's mind about doing feature films. I think he would be a featured director after that with another film. Mm -hmm. Except that I think he himself decided I better stick to what I I do well and know well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it was his choice more than anything. We did develop a script for uh, a feature film script, uh, w which was his idea and his script. I developed it with him uh, that never went anywhere. It, it's its um, central character was a voiceover guy working in the in the, in the film industry. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also a comedy, but a, an edge edgy edgy comedy yeah oh i would have loved to see that so uh yeah i do have the script uh we i think we shot yeah we did we shot a uh a promotional video for it mm -hmm. we shot maybe 20 minutes so i do have it mm -hmm. interesting the la riot film is is um i think what's so interesting about it is that there are so few films um about the LA riots. I mean, it was such a huge issue and um, I've been reading into, um, like reading books on it and everything. And I would have expected it to appear in, in, in so many films, um, but there really aren't a lot of films about the LA riots. There's a TV movie called Riot, which is sort of an episodic yes, I saw that. movie on it with Luke Perry in it. And a couple of years ago, um, I forget the director's name. It's called Kings. Daniel Craig and Halle Berry. That that's set during the riots. And then you have a lot of movies that just you know sort of allude to the riots. You have a sort of uh, like a setting, or you have images that remind you of the riots. But the L.A. riots, spectacular, was really one of the very few films that addressed what was going on. I found that really fascinating. You know, Hollywood has a reputation for being liberal. Mm-hmm. Liberal is not daring or radical in any way. Uh, I've grown as suspicious of a liberal sensibility as I have of any other sensibility. It does not take ch chances. So the LA riots, just as the George Floyd recent mm -hmm. uh, events that caused that provoked riots are not ones that Hollywood really wants to touch 
because they go too far. Liberals won't go that far. They'll have tame politics, but not, mm -hmm. uh, they won't take a stand, in my opinion, ever. They just want to sweep under the rug anything that would smack. I mean, here, let's take another example. The Chicago 7 movie. Mm -hmm. you, you know that movie, yes? Mm -hmm. Aaron Sorkin, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was in the Chicago riot. This is when I was a teenager in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I was there for that event. That movie rewrote history. It was a really well-made movie. It had a very liberal sensibility, but it did not represent anyone that I knew right. Right. Mm -hmm. Abby Hoffman was not right. None of the characters, Tom Hayden was not right in that movie. I knew those people. Mm -hmm. But that's what a liberal mind will do with a true story. They will pablomize it. Even Aaron Sorkin, whose writing I always liked, but I was never there for the events he was writing for, except this one. And I could see what Hollywood did to a really moving story mm -hmm. by making the characters Hollywood characters, as opposed to real characters. Jerry Hoffman was not the same Jerry Hoffman that I knew um, in that movie. So I'm just saying, uh, even someone whose work I respected, when I actually saw him change a story that I knew from having lived it, there's something corrupt about that mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, I guess the truth is always so much more complex than um, what you know. What many movies want you to believe, and um, when you do a political movie, a lot of people sort of want to make a point, and to make a point, you would always have to, um, you know, to be on a very specific side and reduce the complexity of the issue and. Um, yeah, sort of really take a stand in a way and not care so much about, you know, the uh, the different sides of, of what was going on. Yeah, I, I think for me, I was, because I was a late teenager, I was so inspired by these guys, having mm -hmm. known them in the streets and seen them and seen their sense of humors and what the, they really meant by their words. Um, in fact, I was the person it's in the movie i was the person i had met a motorcycler in the parks the weeks before the democratic convention that i put together with abby hoffman and said, why don't you use this guy as a bodyguard he's willing he turned out to be an undercover cop <laughs> i did that and that's actually in the movie but I'm, so i'm saying that a whole host of characters i was so inspired by Mm -hmm. to see them made into Hollywood characters was very difficult for me to take. Mm -hmm. I understand, yeah. yeah. Have you ever thought about um, making your own version um, of, of, of that kind of story? Like producing a, um, a project that um, really goes more to the core of what, what you experienced? Uh, you know, I, I think the sad truth is, although I... I came to Android having helped raise money. 
I'm not a rich kid that was brought up connected to money. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what I'm I'm saying, which is not sad to me right now, I'm too old to start again. Uh, if I financed what I could from w- what I had done in the past and who I was, but I never. In fact, I've got a script that uh, would be a Hollywood movie that I'm partnered with uh, a man named Carrie Brokaw, who uh, now you can look him up. He's a producer of note. Uh, I brought him the script. I I co-wrote it with a guy named David Nickerson. So I'm still trying to put projects together in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm also working on a documentary that I've been working on for four or five years. So it hasn't been that I quit, mm-hmm. but the thought that I have the clout to raise the money or to get the money to do the kind of projects I would want to do uh, has long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not depressed about it. That's just the way it is. And I'll continue working my heart out on projects that I like but I have no, just like my brother, I have no guarantee anybody's oh. going to buy them. So what can I do but take my son surfing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> anyway, so. Which is also, of course, a, a worthwhile project and a way more important project in a sense than <laughs> all the movies um, taken together. Yeah, I have a daughter who's 15 who's playing on her high school basketball team. Mm. And as far as I can tell, She's the first varsity player we've ever had in our entire, my entire family. My, my family, when we got involved with sports, my father was manager of the soccer team in his high school. You know what I'm saying? We never got farther than being a manager. And now there's my daughter. So that, that's given me a great deal of pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, I love making movies. And if, if someone will put up the money for this picture, which is called chemistry, which I'm working mm. with, with carry on, I, I will do it in a minute. I, I will jump to it in a minute. I'll put all my time and energy in it. It's a remarkable controversial script that ideally would have an A-list cast. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a big mm. movie. Um, And it's a, It's once again, I mean, as Kerry said, he was one of three people I sent it to when I knew I needed a partner on it. And all three responded and said, let's do the script. Mm -hmm. So I know it's not just me, but still we're out to directors, A-list directors, Mm -hmm. and COVID killed us because we, Mm -hmm. you know, and then post-COVID is killing us because all these directors have six projects backed up now because Mm. they were out of circulation themselves for two years. So it's a tough business. Mm. And I I, I mean, I can only do what I do and we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. What is the script about? I found the name uh, uh, chemistry. I found that project. What's the story of that? Well, we're not, we're not really saying what it's about because it's a, it's a big surprise. Okay. But it's essentially about a man that invents a cure, but he's an ex-con who was in 
jail for selling steroids to athletes. <laughs> and he he was sort of put there by the pharmaceutical industry. So mm -hmm. it's a it's an anti-pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. movie about what they'll do to keep a cure. So he and another guy dresses clowns and administer to children this drug mm -hmm. illegally <laughs> and become notorious because they're curing something that shouldn't have been able to be cured. Mm -hmm. And so it's a road movie. They're going around the country using this and they're being chased by local police. It starts in Portland. Local police who want to help them ultimately and federal police who want to take them off the streets. Mm -hmm. But it's comedy. Anyway, there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, oh, it's a really a wonderful script. And the, the partnership between this chemist ex-con chemist and a kid who delivers legal uh, marijuana to people in Portland. That's his job is mm -hmm. he's a 25 year old delivery guy. Mm -hmm. uh, the relationship is one of the true buddy movies of the world. Anyway, that's it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds cool. I would love to see that. Well, yeah, I, I'm certainly it would be available to be read. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so and then this uh, documentary I'm working on is uh, is about a bunch of ancestors of ex-slaves in East Texas mm -hmm. who are trying to gain access to the cemetery where their ancestors are buried, but it's landlocked and they have no access for the last. 50 years mm -hmm. they can't get in to see to pay respects to their ancestors <laughs> well it goes all the way back to slavery days so this has been in the making for 20 years but well. <laughs> i got involved about five years ago because um i saw the footage and i said this is a feature-length documentary it, it should be made it's very mm -hmm. moving mm -hmm. and so that's so I, I guess all I do is get involved with impossible projects. <laughs> anyway, it's about race and reconciliation. Yeah. And uh, I think it's an important documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it. So it, you already have material shot and you're it, it's currently being edited or um, you need more material? There's 170 hours of footage <laughs> okay. that, they, that these people have done. <clears throat> down through the years and they brought it to me to look at because I had done a documentary called uh, slingshot mm -hmm. that uh, was distributed in some 17 countries by Netflix. No, 17 la different languages, you know, it's award-winning documentary. So they wanted me to look at it and I was moved to tears by mm -hmm. selected footage they sent me. So I thought, God, if I'm moved to tears, seeing it for the first time an audience will be and and so mm -hmm. basically i was motivated by my own emotions mm -hmm. it's called resurrecting love mm -hmm. yeah uh, yeah I've, i've seen the title in your 
in, in, in the list, but I thought it was a project that was already finished. No, no, it's... Um, I found a website, actually. Right now, we're cutting a rough assembly. Mm -hmm. And I think we will begin screening to raise the further money we need to finish because rights have to be cleared. I mean, you know, it's a bureaucratic mess at the other end that we got to uh, actually raise money too. So if we're going to get distribution, we need E&O insurance. In order to get E&O insurance, we have to make sure we've got proper clearances. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there's we're using archival footage as well. I mean, it's about history. It's about the history that's not being taught in our schools as well as these people's struggles. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of the projects I worked about on when I was with the company theater, we did a Black History album way back in the early 1970s mm -hmm. that itself never got distribution, but <laughs> I've been a history buff ever since then. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So again, you're coming full circle in a in a in a sense. Yeah, in a strange sort of way. Um, I think I, at this point in my life, I I'm choosing passion as mm -hmm. the basis for projects that I'm going to get involved with. I love working, and I love making films, but it has to come from passion. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not looking to be hired on a film, really. I'm looking to work on something I, I can love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, passion is, is always the best motivation, I guess. And um, I'm actually reminded of a, a, the, the Roger Ebert review that he wrote for Critters, um, where he, he ended with the last sentence says, um, it's clear that the people who were making this movie had fun making it. So I think that's a good through line through um, uh, those movies that yeah. you really wanted to make them, that you really, you know, enjoyed making them. Yeah, and I'm happy it can communicates to some. I mean, that's the experience of seeing a film that you've made that works like crazy for the audience or a theater piece. I mean, we traveled the world, and uh, when we were getting responses. In France, where half the people didn't even understand the language we were speaking, <laughs> uh, when we were getting standing ovations, you can't repeat that. So, mm. uh, so you do need an audience. Uh, you can't do it in a vacuum. And I am, I do have political views too, which are important to attach myself to. Which, um, whether whatever the genre of film. Mm -hmm. uh, my views are in there. They're in critters as well, you know. Um, anyway, yeah, I hope I wasn't too verbal for you, but no, I, I loved it. Um, I, I just want to thank you so much for um, really diving into your whole career and all those movies and memories uh, for me. It was really fascinating to to hear that. Um, I really appreciate that. Well. It was a pleasure. And I, I mean, thanks for all your knowledge, too. I, I, you know, I think I'm doing a lot of having kids in their 20s and teens. Um, I'm doing a lot of remembering for them at mm -hmm. this stage of my life as well. So mm -hmm. uh, I welcome the opportunity to, <laughs> I mean, it's 
pretty long ago some of these uh, movies we're talking about so i welcome your questions